This is chapter 157 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS80DBooks. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, Brad Thor delivers his best excuse yet to turn off the TV and get lost in a good book. And then we get lost amid the stacks of a New York City landmark with author Fiona Davis. Best-selling thriller writer Brad Thor is back with what is, in my humble opinion, probably his best Scott Harvath book yet. That being said, the Navy SEAL turned super spy is in the worst shape we've seen him. I recently got to chat with Brad about Near Dark and what he sees as a silver lining to the COVID-19 pandemic. A broken Scott Harvath returns in Near Dark. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, it's interesting because last year, Barnes & Noble asked me to do a bonus chapter so they could have a special edition uh, of my novel Backlash last year. And I had finished writing it and I had said yes early in the process, not knowing what I was going to do for a bonus. And I realized, well, I couldn't extend the story because the story was wrapped up. Every thread got knotted and clipped and it was all done. So I came up with this idea of the largest bounty in history being placed on the head of America's top spy, Scott Harbath. And I thought it was great. I wrote it, my editor loved it, said it was the best chapter she'd ever read. Barnes and Noble was really happy. But what did I do? It's like the Marvel universe. So my kids love the Marvel movies and we always have to stay through the credits because one more scene pops up at the end. Well, whatever happens in that scene becomes part of the Marvel Universe. So this bonus chapter for me became part of Scott Harvath's universe. So I couldn't do a soap opera trope and have Scott Harvath wake up at the beginning of Near Dark and go, whoo, what a bad dream that bounty on my head was. I actually had to use that chapter as a prologue, as a jumping off point. And what it did was spur in me a, a real challenging uh, book writing experience, which is if you have America's top spy, a top operative, he was a Navy SEAL, now he's a spy, who doesn't want to be found, who cares how big the price is on his head? If, you don't, if he doesn't want you to find him, you're not going to find him. So I said, how do I write a book based on this? And I went to some of my friends who are spies and uh, tier one operators, SEALs and Delta Force people. And I said, if this happened to you, what would you do? And one of them said to me, the only way to kill a contract like that is to kill the person who put it out on you. I thought, wow, that's pretty dramatic. And they said, yeah, you can't allow yourself to become the mouse and then to become the cat. You have to figure out a way that you're the cat and the bad guys are the mouse. And I'm like, okay. So it, this book all starts off with Harvath being at a very low point professionally, personally. A lot has been taken from him. And I tell people, my books are like James Bond movies. You don't need to have read a prior Brad Thor book to jump in with Near Dark. I'm going to get you up to speed right away. You're going to love it right out of the gate. Uh, and this one is probably the most personal I've written. So the title Near Dark works on a lot of levels in the book. That, that flickering flame of humanity is close to being extinguished in Harvath. And his arc through the book, uh, listen, I want you to take it to the beach, to the lake, have it be a really fast, fun read, be a great escape, particularly now with all the crazy COVID stuff. It's great to turn off the TV and lose yourself in a book. Um, and I think this is the one. I, I wrote it not knowing COVID was coming, but I'm so glad I wrote a book that is this big in scope, but has this much action uh, to, to just kind of sweep you through it. I think it's a lot of fun and it's very re rewarding on many levels. I have to agree with that. And yeah, I have to say, I think this is probably also, you know, it's the most vulnerable we've ever seen, Scott. And it's really, 
it, it was almost kind of hard to wrap your head around a little bit because you're used to him being like this kick-ass spy. And I, listen, that was the hardest part about writing it, too, right? Is how much of that do you reveal? I was wondering, are, are, are readers going to like this? Am I showing them too much of his emotional turmoil and everything? So it's really tough. I'm glad you noticed that because that was my goal in this. I think also you might actually get a few new readers, people who have never read before because they maybe they've stayed away because they think, oh, this is a political military thriller. It's got too much jargon in it. It's got too much of that, you know, the tech stuff. I don't care what kind of gun he shoots with. But this book, I think, you know, this it really applies to a wide audience because you do have that vulnerability in it and you really are examining his character. Thank you. And the other, I brought in the character of the Norwegian intelligence operative, Solvi Kolstad, and her very troubled, broken past and all the pain that she drags around with her. I, I, I joked, and I haven't found a better way to describe this, but it's like dropping two coffee cups on the floor in the kitchen and then trying to glue the pieces back together. And you've got little pieces of each one. And you make this Franken cup, but it actually is stronger and bigger than the, the two cups were on their own. And I bring them together. So you got a great male character, great female character, because I wanted the book to be very accessible uh, and very rewarding, regardless if you came, if you were a man or a woman. And, you know, I've got about 60% men, 40% women, and I would love to have more women reading these books. And I said, okay, well, then I want to give my female readers even more to root for, even more to identify with in the books while still keeping the guys happy. So that was another hurdle I set for myself with writing Near Dark. I love her character. I also love the the running joke about how because she's a, you know, a stellar looking Norwegian, she's always getting an upgrade. (laughs) I actually have some Scandinavian friends and that's uh, I lived in Greece uh, a long time ago and it's very popular with Swedes and Norwegians and stuff and I, I had some friends that made that joke and so I've been keeping that in my hip pocket for, for decades so it was kind of fun to trot that out and throw it in the book. I like to have a little levity in there. The book's serious. They're big, they're big cool action things and lots of stuff happening but I think a little levity in the right spot really goes a long way. I also never cease to be amazed by the locales you choose, and this one is no different. I mean, Montcham Michel sounds incredible. It's so magnificent, and I, I've been lucky to go there a couple of times. It is, uh, It really is the eighth wonder of the world, and there's a reason it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and one of the most popular places, tourist attractions in, in France. Uh, it's gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. And it's funny, I can't reveal who who I had this discussion with, but I was talking to a big, big, huge Hollywood director uh, about uh, turning the books into films. And this director is working on another project and they have a film coming up. And he said, you swiped one of our locations. He said, I can't believe it. We were thinking about using Mont Saint-Michel in the next movie. And I'm like, well, great, let's do it for my movie. You know, you have a lot of fans who look forward to seeing you in person whenever a new book comes out. What's it been like for you not to be able to travel and go out and meet your readers with, you know, COVID and all the restrictions? It's tough because I'm a people person. So the readers, I don't work for the publisher. I work for the readers. So the readers are my employers. They're my bosses. When they go leave those starred reviews, that's my annual performance review on Amazon or Goodreads or Barnes and Noble. And I like getting out and seeing them to say, hey, Am I keeping you happy? Am I a good employee? Am I giving you what you want? And, you know, we hug, we shake hands, we take photos, and now all that's gone, unfortunately, and we've moved online. So that, 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 that human connection, we're still connecting. It's not the same as being out there, 
But I'm trying to find the silver lining in all of this, which is there's probably people at home who might not have gotten in a car to go down and see this Brad Thor guy on a Wednesday night at the local bookshop. But you know what? I don't have to get off the couch. I can just fire up my laptop. I've heard about this guy. I want to see him talk about his book. So I'm hoping that while I can't get out there and see my fans in person, that maybe by doing all these virtual events, I'll be able to attract new fans. So that's what I'm trying to do. Keep my existing fans happy while also bringing new fans into the fold. So now your books always seem to be several steps ahead of what's actually going on in the world. And this won't come as a surprise to your devout fans and readers. But you wrote a book about a virus sweeping across the globe. What was it, like six books ago? Yeah, Code of Conduct. And it opens with uh, the line, if the president could catch the virus, the rest of the country knew no one was safe. That was the opening line of that book. That's incredible. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me how you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. You know, it's funny. Stephen King once said that a writer is someone who's trained their mind to misbehave. I didn't need to train it. It came all <laughs> all wobbly and weird with the wiring. So I'm constantly gobbling up news. I read like crazy. I'm like Pac-Man with books. And it's just the way these things bang around in my head. And at some point, it, I, I can't ignore them anymore. I can't shut the voice down. I can't turn the volume down. I have to write that book. And it, it, I've been very fortunate in that the timing has worked when I've put these things out. Uh, because now I have to tell you, Lisa, I, I'm, I wouldn't write about COVID. I am not going to have COVID in any future books because a, I don't want to try to deal with spies, social distancing. How do you do a brush pass <laughs> if you're socially distant? How do you have a conversation in a cafe in Paris or Vienna? I'm in the escape business. I'm in the entertainment business. And I want you to pick up my book and forget about COVID. So there's no way I'm touching it at all in the next book or the book after that. No, I'm going to give you the old world that you know and love and that knock on wood, we're all going to be going back to sometime very soon. I think we're also really lucky that you've decided to use the way your brain works for us and not against us and become some sort of worldwide criminal mastermind. <laughs> yeah, my wife says that, too. She much prefers this lifestyle. She didn't want to live in a hollowed out volcano or a submarine somewhere. <laughs> so what's next for Harvath? What's next for you? There's a there's a real fun ending to Near Dark, and I think I've set Harvath up on a brand new path in life, and I've started working on the book, uh, but what's really tough is the whole COVID thing has thrown my radar off a little bit. So my ability to look over the horizon, to peer over the horizon and tell you what's coming next, we've got an election, we've got COVID, there's so many different things happening in the world, in uh, not just in our country, but other ones, that... I've actually got the pause button pushed right now because I've got a couple of directions I think the new book could go, but I need a little bit more kind of cultural information. So now I'm just, I'm on tour, uh, getting the word out about Near Dark, and I'm not writing, which is a little bit unusual for me at this point, but I think it's the right thing to do. My instinct is saying, wait, don't rush into the new book, just wait. So I'll, I'll get the vibrations of what's coming long before it happens, but right now I'm just kind of enjoying taking a little... Uh, a little breather, uh, but my publisher will be, you know, knocking on my door for a manuscript pretty soon, so I can't breathe too long. Well, you know what? I think that's great advice, even if you're not reading a book. Take a take a step back, breathe, wait to see what's coming, and then jump right back into it. I think that's a great plan. We've been talking with Brad Thor. The new book is Near Dark. Brad, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and have a great rest of your summer. 
The New York Public Library celebrates its 125th anniversary this year. The main building at the edge of Bryant Park and its famous lions are visited by more than 32 million people every year. This year being the exception, of course. If you've never visited the Marble Beaux Arts Design Building, you'll definitely want to after reading this week's Summer Read Pick. I had the pleasure of talking with Fiona Davis about the Lions of Fifth Avenue. Readers know to expect your books to be set in a famous New York City landmark, and I think you top yourself with this one. The backdrop is the public library at the edge of Bryant Park. What drew you to this legendary institution? Ah, it's a great question. Well, I'll be honest, I've been giving author talks around the country for the past few years. And whenever I'm talking about a book, I'll say, you know, um, let me hear your your suggestions. Um, Because I know New York so well, it's kind of interesting to see it from an outsider's point of view. And the New York Public Library just came up time after time as a suggestion to the point where I thought, okay, you know, let me do a little research and see what I can find out and see if I could set a book there. So it really was the readers. That's really interesting. So it's people from out of town or was it New Yorkers themselves who thought you should set a book there? A lot of people from out of town mentioned it. And I think it's just a a huge tourist attraction. And when they when people go inside it, they don't forget it. It's, It's just a unique building. It's beautiful. It's got such a history. And so it stands out um, as a, as a real New York landmark. And people love those lions as well. Yes, I know. I know. I have to give credit to the the title of the book. Was I didn't come up with it. It was um, my editor and my agent came up with it separately. And I, I think it's just a, a perfect title because the lions are so iconic. That and the name of the family in your book is Lions, although spelled L-Y-O-N-S. So I love the little the little play on words there as well. Exactly. You know, to be honest, um, they had a different last name. And when we came up with the title, I just thought, oh, this is an opportunity, and I changed it. Nice. I love hearing those little tidbits. <laughs> it really it really is a collaboration, this book. You know, I, I was surrounded by a, an amazing team of editors and, and um, you know, agents and publicists, and, and everybody um, was involved, and that, it's just a, a real group project. So tell us a little bit about the story itself. The book takes place in two timelines. In 1913... It's from the point of view of Laura Lyons, and she is the wife of the superintendent of the library. And they live in a seven-room apartment deep inside the library that actually existed. And in my book, uh, I made up the family, but it's um, Laura and her husband and her two children. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but she feels stifled. She wants to get out in in the big world. And so she applies to Columbia Journalism School and gets in. And suddenly her world is really cracked wide open, and it's the ramifications of of that decision. And then in 1993, it's from the point of view of a curator who is about to put up a huge um, exhibition of um, rare books and manuscripts, and one of her rare books goes missing. And she's drawn into a series of book thefts that occurred 80 years ago, as well as this tragedy that happened to the superintendent's family back then. And I like to say it's about the the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. I love the element of the mystery surrounding the book thefts. And, you know, as someone like you who loves books as much as you do, writing about them going missing and in some cases maybe being destroyed a little bit, that couldn't have been easy to write. 
Yeah, you know, I was really um, intrigued by some real-life book thefts that had happened um, to libraries and did a lot of research on that. And it's true because, like, in the in the New York Public Library, they have the Berg Collection, which is this kind of a library within a library, and that's where my curator in 1993 works. And it, it's uh, kind of this archives of manuscripts and first editions and letters and diaries representing the work of more than 400 authors. And what's incredible about it is, you know, you can see this a poem by Walt Whitman with lines scratched out and, and rips and tear, tears where maybe he was frustrated. And you really get a sense of the act of human creation by looking at these early documents and just that these, these, these authors who we revere, you can see what they went through to create these masterpieces and, you know, as they kind of discarded words, as they worked through each draft, not knowing that this one piece of paper might be worth tens of thousands of dollars one day, um, because it really shows the process of creation. And that's why these rare books and documents are so important. Do you keep all your scratched out first drafts? <laughs> you know what? I, I, when I work, I work on Scrivener, which is a great um, program um, for writing books. But I do sketch out every scene on a legal pad with a pencil. And I have all those legal pads because I, I feel like if anything went wrong, because I save everything and I email myself the documents, so I try and never lose anything, knock on wood. Um, but having these notebooks with the outline of the chapters is, is the anchor for the story for me. So I guess in a way I do. The research for this book, did you get behind the scenes library tours or did you just go to the library and request all the information they had on the library? <laughs> Which they have a lot. It, they were they were a real active partner in this um, in a number of ways. One is that, you know, as I researched, I learned there was this apartment in the library that actually existed. Um, and at the time, the, the superintendent and his wife and three kids lived there. His daughter was born in the library. And this started in around 1911 when the library first opened. And they had amazing archives from the superintendent's files. So I could see the payroll. I could see letters of complaint that were sent to him. He was really in charge of the whole infrastructure of the building, as opposed to, say, a super in an apartment building. You know, he, he really took care of of everything in the background that was going on. And it was a really important job. And so I had all these records. I could see how many people worked for him and what they got paid each week. And, um, and I was able to get a behind the scenes tour of the old apartment, which is now offices and storage, which really helped me get a sense of what it would be like to live in building up this kind of secret stairway. And then on top of that, they have this room called the Allen Room, where if you have a book contract, you can apply to get a desk there. And so I wrote the book about the library in the library, which was just fantastic. Showing up, walking up those stairs and settling down to write. It was just the perfect location. That's very cool. Also very meta. Yes, <laughs> very meta. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned, you know, this is not just about the library. It's also about the early women's rights movement. Yeah, yeah. So I learned about something called the Heterodoxy Club, which was a women's group that began in Greenwich Village in 1912, founded by this woman, Marie Jenny Howe, who was a, a feminist organizer and a writer and a suffragist. And she held um, luncheon meetings every two Saturdays. And women would gather and meet to 
talk about the issues of the day, like the right to vote, birth control, even something like free love. They were debating these concepts that to me are more associated with the 60s and 70s back in the 1910s. And it attracted icons like Agnes DeMille and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And so I have my character as part of her research for her thesis at Columbia Journalism School kind of infiltrate that club and because it was very private and um, and get caught up in the issues of the day. And, and that was quite a quite a surprise to learn what people were talking about and passionate about back then. I know you also went to Columbia J School. I hope your experience was much different than from what your main character had to go through. <laughs> yes, I went to the J School much later. And yes, it was, I had an amazing time. It, it changed my life because it really taught me how to think and write. The professors were fantastic. I'm still very supportive of the school um, today. You know, and when, when my character goes to the school in, um, back in 1913, I think it was only uh, 15% women when it first opened. And then today, though, it's uh, 75% women. So things have changed. It's also crazy to think that back then there were certain stories that women were expected to cover and certain stories that they weren't allowed to touch. So City Hall was off limits, but the society pages is and the mayor's wife is where they belonged. Yes. And that's taken from there's a wonderful history of the early um, life of the Columbia Journalism School. And and they talked about how the women couldn't, you know, weren't it was they were considered too delicate to go do a, a you know tough story, and so they were sent out to the charitable aid societies to go find crying children, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then so my character of course gets very frustrated with that. I think a lot of women would get frustrated with that in this day and age. <laughs> yes, yes. I think actually that's why I like to write in dual timelines because you can see how things have changed and how they have stayed the same. Um, which I find just fascinating. Now, dedications in books usually don't get a lot of attention, but I love that this book is dedicated to librarians everywhere. Why did you do that for this book? I, you know, because the book is set in a library. Librarians were so helpful in researching and writing it. I remember in an early draft, I had a, a dead body in the book. It's not there now. And <laughs> I emailed one of the librarians at the New York Public Library to say, if you had to hide a dead body in the library, where would you put it? And she wrote back with a, a very specific location, which was so helpful, <laughs> and said she'd never been asked that before. Um, but also for me, when I was young, we moved around a lot, and the libraries were the, the, one of the only constants, because no matter where we were, we went to the library once a week and got books. And my brother would go to the you know, train section, and I would go to the horses or Judy Bloom. And, and so to me, that it, you know, walking into a library always just settled me. Any anxiety I have goes away because I know I'm safe there. And we should also note that this book comes in the year that the New York Public Library is celebrating its 125th birthday. Yes, yes, which is amazing. And, you know, even when it opened in 1911, it was the largest marble structure in the U.S. at the time. It had 50,000 visitors its first day. You know, it took nine years and $9 million to build. There's such an amazing history about the construction of it. Um, that it's wonderful the way they're celebrating it. And it's unfortunate, though, that this year being what it is, that a lot of that stuff has had to be curtailed, you know? Yeah, well, you know, we were supposed to do a launch day event at the library on on August 4th um, that would have been amazing. It is virtual now and will still be amazing. 
Um, but, you know, I think they're figuring out how to pivot and, and adapt, and they're doing a, a really good job. And there's so many great resources for the library online. Um, there's great videos. There's, you know, you can access so much online these days that I think that that's very helpful. And I do also love that the lions are now sporting masks. They are. I think I read that they're four feet wide or something. They're incredible. <laughs> and the images of them are, are terrific. And it, it just goes to show New York, you know, we were hit really hard early on. And we're figuring it out because everybody's wearing masks. And it's, you know, even the lions, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So can you tell us which New York City landmark you plan to, to write about next? Sure. I have turned to kind of this less known gem called the Frick Collection. And it's a beautiful um, museum on Fifth Avenue and 70th Street owned by the Frick family. They lived there. It was a residence um, for a, a number of years and then became a, an art museum after. And so I love the fact that it's both a residence and a museum. And so there's two timelines and, again, just a really interesting cast of characters to play with. I'm, I'm having a really good time working on that one. Do you think you'll ever run out of ideas, New York being the way it is and the history that's here? You know, I joke around that by the 30th book, I'll be doing the gas station on the corner of 11th Avenue. <laughs> well, that might be that might be an oddity by that point where yeah, they keep I disappearing. <laughs> I know. I think there's only one left. Um, yeah. You know, there. I love New York and I love just the layers of history that are in every building. So you really can't go wrong. Although, you know, at this point, I'm thinking maybe London might be a fun place to explore. Um, really, the sky's the limit because every one of these old buildings has so many stories to tell. And for me, it's just about doing the research and seeing what jumps out at me. And then I'm on my way. So, yeah, I, I would say let's keep on going. All right. Well, we look forward to it. So we've been speaking with Fiona Davis. The new book is The Lions of Fifth Avenue. Thank you for spending some time with us today and talking to us about it. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm really excited to get this one out in the world. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time we hear from an author whose multi-generational immigration story spent 85 weeks on the German bestsellers list. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.